Hello friends, before we get started on this next amazing episode, I just wanted to give a short shout out to our team at MetalCloak, the group that makes this podcast possible. From engineering to production, from marketing to sales, from accounting to HR, every member of the MetalCloak family works diligently every day to bring some of the world's best products to the off-road enthusiast. Designed, engineered, proven, MetalCloak. That is not just a clever cadence written by me, but a true statement of what we do every day and why we truly appreciate each and every one of you. If you are looking for something for your Jeep, Ram, Bronco, or Toyota, give us a try. We are here to help. And now, on to another amazing episode of the Modern Jeeper Show. Uh, my buddy, who was the big Pro Street guy, he got pulled over by the police for, quote, driving a race car on the road. And I was pulled over for driving a, quote, monster truck on the road. (laughs) The Modern Jeeper Show. The show about Jeeps, Jeeping, and Jeepers. Hello, Modern Jeepers, and welcome to episode number eight of the Modern Jeepers Show, the show about Jeeps, Jeeping, and Jeepers. This week, we have the awesome pleasure of interviewing Ian Johnson, the 14-year host of Extreme 4x4 and Extreme Off-Road. Corey and I talked with Ian about what made him want to wrench on cars for a living, why it takes 9,000 hours to become a mechanic in Canada, why he'll always be a tranny guy, how to keep a shop class interested, what he learned from Dead Santa, how he won over Pirate 4x4, why the analytics of TV just don't make sense anymore, why he is torn on his favorite build, and where he would go if he could wheel anywhere. Finally, we will share with you our tech tip of the week and get some great advice from Ian on the best equipment for trail welds. As always, we are extremely grateful to our partners, including Raceline Wheels, Warren Winches, Best Stop, Milestar tires, rugged radios, and of course, metal cloak. So sit back, relax with a cold one, and enjoy episode number eight of the Modern Jeeper Show. Well, hello, Modern Jeepers, and welcome to the next episode of the Modern Jeeper Show, the show about Jeeps, Jeeping, and Jeepers. I am here with Mr. Modern Jeeper, Corey Osborne, and of course, I am Matson. Hey, Corey. Hey, guys. So, hey, uh, what have you been doing this last week outside of just unbearing yourself from snow? Well, I tell you, it's been a, it's been a good week. I have a, a handful of projects going on, and I, and I think today was the, the first time that I sat back and kind of went, okay, you know how you feel like you have four or five things that need to get done, but you can't really do anything on any of them. Always. Um, yeah. So this week has been that week for me. I, uh, I spent some time over in, in Moab the other day and planning our next modern Jeeper adventure uh, in Moab over Memorial Day weekend. Um, we'll be talking about that soon. Absolutely. And other than shoveling snow, trying to completely overhaul the CTI trailer uh, I'm really not doing anything. I'm just kind of sitting around. Well, and, and, and tell us about that. Cause that the CTI trail, that's kind of a big deal. That, that one was built in 2014. Uh, I think we talked, talked about it before in the show, but it was built in 2014. It has seen what on average 20,000 miles a year 
um, since then. Uh, it's done over a majority of the CTIs. We have over 5,000 CTIs done since that was built, and most of those were on that trailer. Um, and and now it's finally getting some TLC. Absolutely. It it had, uh, last year I drove about 41,000 miles, and while I didn't uh, take the CTI trailer everywhere, for the for the most part, it did go with me everywhere I was. So yeah, 5,200 rigs on that trailer over the last five years. It was time. It needed some TLC. So I'm excited to what it's going to look like. It's going to look a little different, uh, but I think we're going to, it's going to look a lot cleaner. Uh, we're having the, the entire red parts of the trailer linexed in that same red. We're going to keep the safety blue of the pads. The deck's going to be polished. Race line stepped up with some, some trailer wheels that'll match actually the truck that I drive to, to pull it with. So it, it was time. It, it needed a little bit of an overhaul. It was getting a little bit faded and a little beat up. So I'm excited for it to hit the road this year. That's cool. That's cool. And the, it's it'll be ready for the first day pew is, is, is what's the event coming up here doing next weekend? Next weekend, I've got Crawling for Reed in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, and I sure hope it's ready because I have to leave in like seven days or something. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I've got a little bit of work to do yet. Awesome. Well, I think Qualifying for Reed is a great event. It's really grown over the years. Um, it's such a touching story. Um, and uh, it happens to be in the backyard of, of today's guests. But before we talk about that, events. We had a great meeting last week uh, talking about what we're doing for, for events uh, for Modern Jeeper Adventures. Um, the next one on the schedule is the Moab event and uh, anything you want to share about, uh, about that event this year? You bet. You know, last year's event, we had about 25 rigs. We're going to keep that same number this year. We're changing it up a little bit though. There's going to be some, there's going to be a technical, more of a technical side to that trip. We're going to do a little bit more difficult trails this year as, as an option, We'll always, of course, still have that moderate option. But I think that we've we've learned so much this past year in, in hosting some of these other events that now we're kind of refining these into being pretty special. And and I think this Moab trip has that potential. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, well, I know registration will be up, I expect, this week. So for those that are listening, and we will be announcing registration for the Moab trip as well as the Tillamook trip. And that's where I happen to be. Uh, well, Corey's in Colorado. I'm actually up in Lincoln City, Oregon, which is about an hour south of Tillamook. And uh, I wasn't familiar with the area, so I drove around yesterday. I went out to the Tillamook Creamery with my kids, and that's always fun to sample lots of cheese. Uh, and we uh, then I drove out to Sound Sand Lake, and that was this pretty incredible area. So took the Jeep out there and checked some things out, and really excited because Sand Lake's going to be part of the Tillamook trip. We also have some other cool stuff, including some private property that we'll be staying at. And it's a it's going to be a great trip. Registration for that as well should go live this week. So awesome. I'm, ex- awesome. I'm excited to get both of those going. That one, again, you're probably going to be at about, I think we're looking at about 15 uh, registrations for that one, possibly 20. We have to work one thing out. It's going to be a lot of fun. So we'll get that going. The next thing is Rubicon trip. Uh, we got some great insight from our modern jeeper partner scott becker on what he's doing for the rubicon trip and it's pretty exciting so i think it's really going to be a premier event and uh we'll be getting registration going for that probably within a couple weeks 
Um, so that's it's going to be great. Listen, we got a lot to talk about. You know that we could BS forever, but we have a really cool guest on, and I know we want to maximize as much time as possible with this guy. So tell us a little bit about our guest, Corey. You know, this is a, this is going to be a fun podcast uh, for me, for, for our listeners. This guy is, is pretty amazing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little blip uh, of some information I, I dug up on him uh, before this uh, before this podcast. I, I don't quite remember the dead Santa parade float, but I'm going to talk. We're going to ask him about that. This guy has more certifications and more technical training than anybody that I know. He's been an editorial director, a technical writer, a technical producer, a host. Uh, he, he's been trained under General Motors brand for for lots of years he worked as a driveline specialist he attended the prestigious queen's university and and for those that don't know that's that's a pretty that's a pretty cool thing he's taught at the high school level he's taught all of us at many events just all about how to fix things on the trail he's a he's a fun guy to wheel with as well so uh yeah without further waiting uh this week's guest is mr ian johnson ian johnson hey buddy how you doing guys happy to be here that's, hey, quite, well, that's quite the intro i feel super special now well yeah you got all these like you, you know you got all these certifications you're like an official cool dude not just a cool dude <laughs> i need to get i wonder if i can get certified in that too Hey, hey, we'll start it it's gonna be the modern jeeper cool dude certification program you can be <laughs> and, and, Corey like Osborne it. will head it up. Uh, Ian will be on our judgment panel. Yo, I, I got to say for our listeners, it, Ian is not only uh, a guy that we see and we hear and uh, a personality out there who does stuff. And we're going to talk more about that. But I had the pleasure of actually working with Ian on his show. Um, and the guy is a driver. I mean, and he's a doer. Okay. So for all of you out there, He's not just a pretty face with big hair. He's a doer. So, you know, it, it was just a lot of fun. And we've been friends now for I don't know how many years. Uh, lose count when you've got good people around you. So, uh, Ian, thank you so much for joining the Modern Jeeper Show. Ah, pleasure to be here. I'm excited. Excited to get chatting. <laughs> so, so uh, I know Corey's got questions. I got questions. But we like to start at the beginning. So you and I have actually had a conversation about this. And I'm going to let everybody know. Several years ago, I don't think it was 14 or 15 or whatever, I set up a microphone at Off-Road Expo, and I brought in a slew of people to uh, to do some interviews. And I thought we we're going to do like a little little Metal Cloak podcast or whatever. And I have, I have like four or five interviews in the can. We will put that together after this as a bonus, but it was just kind of fun to have that. We did that with, with you, John Herrick. Uh, Greg from Rugged, and in fact, uh, a couple of uh, jobbers, uh, Keith and uh, Pauline Jones out of uh, Marble Falls, Texas. So I'm going to keep those and use them in the future. But Ian, how did you get started? What what brought your interest into wrenching on junk, as you like to say? So I bought her. My, the reason I'm a mechanic all boils down to the fact that the very first car that I bought was not a good car. So <laughs> I, uh, I, I kind of... I, I, I kind of call it like it was kind of kismet sort of thing. So the very first vehicle that I bought, I, I knew since I was 14 years old that I wanted to own a Volkswagen Bug. I don't know why, but I remember like walking through the the store and seeing a, a issue of uh, Dune Buggies and Hot VWs magazine, and I was like hooked. I had to have a Bug, and I bought it when I was 15 years old. Didn't tell my parents. 
just bought it and, and brought it home. And it was a $500 car, and it, it was legitimately 500 I think I overpaid for it at $500. So <laughs> if, I wanted, if I wanted to get this – I wanted to get to school, I had to learn how to work on the car. And I, I consider myself fortunate. You know, I, I believe that you know, I, I have a lot of friends, and we talk about this in, in a lot of the, ironically, in the welding industry, we'll talk about this, that sometimes people just sort of find what they're really good at. And they, it's like whether it's talent or, or what. But I was just fortunate that when I started working on that car, it just came very naturally to me. I could work on that car, and it, it just that's when I knew the very first time I picked up a wrench and started working on that car, I knew I was going to be a mechanic. That was no questions asked. And from that point forward, it just all went downhill. And uh, my first G came about because uh, I'd been working in a shop, and a buddy of mine had a Jeep, and, and he wanted some work done to it, and we put an engine in it, and we – I was working on pro street cars at the time, building drag cars and stuff. And he wanted a Jeep, a motor swap in his Jeep. And we were kind of the only shop in town that did stuff like that. So we swapped the motor and then the truck was back like the next week and on a tow truck. And I, we were all worried like, Oh goodness gracious, the motor blew up or something went wrong. And he came back with, with the biggest smile on his face and a copy of, you know, I think it was Peterson's four wheel drive. And he was like, Oh, I completely blew the rear end out of this Jeep. I need these axles out of a one-ton truck. Here's a magazine article on how to do it. Because this was, you know, the late 80s, the late 80s, late 80s, early 90s. There was no internet yet. So we uh, we put the axles in it. Then he came back again, and we had to find this transfer case to put in it. And finally, I asked him, what is he doing with his Jeep? And he tells me, oh, we're doing this trail riding up in Calabogie, rock crawling. So I went up with him, and uh, I had a Pro Street 79 Chev pickup truck that after that trip I – sold and bought my first jeep because it was just so much fun and then it, that was it it, was, it all went downhill from there jeeps all day every day you know there's a lot of guys who become mechanics and and they kind of get into the grind of it and we have quite a few customers and friends and stuff that are mechanics and don't, that necessarily get to 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 do as much as you but you you went from i want to be a mechanic to getting to work on pro street cars and like like that's not just wrenching and changing oil how, how did you do that yeah well i was still i was still working as a full-time mechanic it, there was just we had we had i was in a small town and we had a car club and everyone had cool cars and i had my bug and at that point in time it was all uh cal customed up and had a big four motor in it we just all gravitated gravitated together and i was still working with the gm dealer uh monday to friday and then i would just work uh, on the, uh, the pro doing pro street stuff on weekends at, at a buddy's shop that just sort of became the place to go to get that work done. And it was kind of like a clubhouse where all the car guys hung out and just basically built cool cars. And, uh, but I was still paying the bills by, uh, you know, changing oil in minivans and, and, uh, and, and changing brake pads. <laughs> so you're with the GM dealership and you, you're getting all the certifications and, and real training there, which is cool. Cause there's a lot of guys that are in the build industry and, and, and we love them, but, Many times it's it's self-taught, and so you had your full-on certified Mister Mechanic GM good wrench guy, right? Yeah. So where I'm from in in Canada, we use what's called the apprenticeship program, which is similar to Europe, which means you're not legally allowed to call yourself a mechanic until you've completed nine thousand hours of training underneath a licensed mechanic and have gone to uh, uh, it's 
four different four month training sessions over a period of five years. Wow. So you basically wow. and, and then you get to then you get to write a test and if you pass the test, then you are what used to be called a mechanic, but now they call it a technician because they charge so much money now. But it's uh, <laughs> now you're a tech a technician so and that's all the trades. So all the trades in, in Canada and Europe, it's body men, it's air conditioning, it's like air like household air conditioning, HVAC, electricians, um, mechanics, plumbers, carpenters. Everyone has a different set of guidelines that they have to follow. And once you get past that, you get a little slip that you put in your wallet. That means that you're actually a licensed technician. And at that point, you can legally the term that the government uses up there is you can legally work on a vehicle for profit. You can always work on your own car or your buddy's car for free, but if you're going to charge somebody to work on their car, you have to be a licensed technician or a licensed tradesperson in any trade you're going to work in. Can you imagine if the United States did that? We wouldn't have any shops. <laughs> well, the, the beauty of it is, the nice thing about it is it sounds silly, but it it, it gives you full accreditation in the shop. Down here, they have a similar program. It's the ASE program. That's right. what Canada actually uses for their tests. To be a licensed mechanic in Canada, you have to write and, and get 80% or higher in one sitting on every ASE certification available at the time. So for me, it was 10 certifications in one shot. You had six hours to write the test. You write the test. If you get 80% above, you're a mechanic. And wait, wait, wait. Uh, you, had to do all, you, you had to do all the tests w in one day. Yeah, they basically – because it's, 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 you know, typical bureaucratic government, right? Why, we, why reinvent something? The, the Automotive Society of Engineering testing was already in place, but it was a bunch of little certifications, right? Like you can right. be ASE certified in brakes or engine. Brakes or, and so sure. they just – yeah, they just staple them all together and say, here's your mechanic license, write this test, and then you go on from there. <laughs> I was going to say, they've changed it since then. Now it's, they have a whole new structure, but that was basically what you had to do when I was, when I was writing it. When, what? How did you do on your I've test? Been, I got like an 85, which qualified me for what's called interprovincial, which allowed me to work anywhere in the country. And so you could jump awesome. from, from province to province if you got a certain grade. So, so okay, so, so you get your first Jeep. You, um, you, you go out there, you, you start building up. What was your first Jeep? 1985 Jeep. CJ7. Nice. And what year was this you got it? Uh, so I would have bought that. Let me think back. So it was an 85. I bought it right after it would be around 93, maybe 92, 93. I bought that one. You, got, you get it. So you get an 85, you get it at 93. And what is the first thing you do to it? Oh, spring over, of course, in 35. <laughs> <laughs> and that was 35, yeah, man. And in, in, in 93, 35, that was still, that's big. Yeah, so it was on, didn't upgrade anything, of course. So still the 20 with the two-piece axle shafts in the rear that broke rather quickly. But, yeah, spring over, 35. And uh, it was, uh, the, the running joke in our town was uh, my buddy who was the big pro street guy, he got pulled over by the police for, quote, driving a race car on the road. And I was pulled over for driving a, quote, monster truck on the road <laughs> which makes me laugh because it's 35 and that just seems so strange nowadays that's yeah, awesome that, that's cool so you get that you, you start building that rig how long did you have that one uh i kept that one for quite some time so that 
Jeep is the reason that I became a transmission specialist uh, for General Motors because I uh, I was where I bought that Jeep and I was in the middle of my apprenticeship program, so I was moving around in, inside my dealership, apprenticing other underneath other licensed tradespeople, tradesmen in different sections because our dealership was specialized. So there's like an engine guy and a tune-up and a fuel electrical and an alignment guy and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so I bought that Jeep, and I I really didn't know anything about Jeeps. I just knew that I liked it. But the the Jeep that was sort of like the hot Jeep where we were from, the guy did a 360 swap in it. So being a typical, you know, at this point I'm like teenager still, like 19, 20 years old, I was uh, I was like, oh, I'm going to do a 360 swap. But I didn't really do any research. I just went out and bought a 360. I didn't realize that there was like an AMC 360 and a Chrysler 360. All I knew was that there was a Chrysler 360 because of the Pro Street stuff. So I built up this great big 360 with a tunnel ram and big old two four barrels on it, and that was my plan to put it in this Jeep. But it that it doesn't work with the with the Torque Command 999 automatic transmission, but it will work with a different Chrysler transmission. So I tried to like take all the guts out of one transmission and put it in another transmission and make it work. And it took it took 11 rebuilds before it could actually work. So that that Jeep is what got me into into rebuilding. Um, the running joke in my family was that I would leave the house in my Jeep and return in reverse only because that was the only gear I would have. So it, it took it took 11, 11 times that transmission was out, to pull it down, find out what burned up, why did it burn up, make a shim to change this one section, figure out why that output shaft was different than this input shaft. And uh, that, that Jeep is the only reason that I built so started building transmissions for a living, and uh, that basically I became a transmission specialist at the dealership, and that's like the best job to have in the world at a dealership, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, been very technical. Got you got more pay than others. You were a little bit of a snob. Well, it was it was the fact that it was still the one it was still the one area where the parts just didn't show up in a box. You know, like through the 80s and the 90s, there were still shops when you took your car into the dealership. You know, you would still rebuild a carburetor in the mid-80s. They were goofy, but you rebuilt them. And, you know, you would rebuild an alternator, and you'd still rebuild a starter. But as we pushed into the 90s, that was going away. You didn't fix anything. You just replaced it. You just so, replaced uh, it. You, yeah. yeah, you weren't even you weren't even rebuilding engines anymore in the dealership. You just got the crate motor and swapped it out. And But the transmission was still the one thing that you were still – it was still not worth it to put a crate transmission in it was still worth to have it rebuilt on site so you'd bring the car in take the transmission tear it apart put it back together and it was that that's why i liked being a mechanic was fixing things i didn't just want to replace things so that's why i thought it was great that's cool well jump forward in the time my little bit you start doing some stuff how did you get interested in like the idea of being a media celebrity uh i i, I was not planned at all in any way shape or form <laughs> i was uh I was a mechanic, and it, like I said, it was Canada, so it's cold like a good, smooth 10 months out of the year, right? You got two months of summer, that's what all you get. And uh, I hate the cold and love the heat, and I was uh, we rented a cottage uh, for one summer, just being a bunch of my friends. Uh, all of us were tradespeople, and, and we were just hanging out, and, and I didn't want to go back to work because we took two weeks off. And I, I realized then that, wait a minute, 
teachers don't work in the summer. They get the summer off. So I decided I was going to become a teacher. So that was that was that was how I made the transition to becoming a from a mechanic to becoming a shop teacher. I went went to Queens University, got my teaching degree, and ended up teaching high school. And when I was teaching high school, I'm always trying to find, you know, things to do for my shop class, you know, to keep kids interested. And that was right around the time when, you know, the whole Monster Garage stuff was coming along and Orange County Chopper stuff was coming up and the Motorcycle Mania documentaries, if you remember those, they were flowing through. And so I would record those and play them for my class. And, uh... My kids would always say, oh, Mr. J, you should be on Monster Garage. You should have that. You'd be so good on that show. And so I literally sat down at the computer, applied on the Internet, and uh, two weeks later I was in Long Beach, California, building a dead Santa Claus parade float for the Rose Bowl. And then uh, that's how it all started. And, and I, I did that, and it was fun. I kept in touch with all the TV guys from that show, and one of them sent me an email out of the blue that just said, hey, there's this production company in Tennessee that's looking for how-to television show guys and you're a teacher and I think you'd be good at it and so I applied on the internet and flew down for a screen test and two weeks later I was making the very first episode of Extreme 4x4. So Dead Santa now what do you remember what episode that was? Oh man I'd have to go back and dig through it was season season three I can't remember the number but yeah it's just Dead Santa Claus Parade Float is what it was called. Yeah, that's the, the the episode is known as the Dead Santa Parade Float episode. That's yeah. that's that's so, so the, funny. The, yeah, so the 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 reason that it ended up being so weird is we shot it over Halloween, so everyone's in that Halloween mode when you're filming this, and the idea was to build a parade float for the show concept was parade float for the Rose Bowl parade, and the designer and Jesse would design it, and then we all had to come in and build it. And uh, because it was Halloween and everyone was Halloween-y and Jesse's kind of Jesse, they just decided to make the, the Santa a big skull-faced dead Santa that drove down the road face down and then hydraulically lifted up, and you'd see, like, the skull and all the ribs sticking out, kind of like an Eddie Van Halen, Eddie-looking thing. And then it would uh, <laughs> shoot, shoot, shoot candy out of its hands and... And uh, it was it was all planned out, and and that was the it was supposed to be in the Rose Bowl, but it got banned from the Rose Bowl, so it had to go to a different parade. <laughs> That's it was, perfect. It was it was, it was so, fun. It was a fun introduction to television for sure. And what what did you get paid for that? Uh, I got I got a set of Mac tools. That was you. It was like a show contest thing. So you got uh, a set of Mac. If you finished the challenge by Friday at midnight, you got like the. Uh, apprentice set of Mac tools and a toolbox to uh, deliver to your house. So I, I want a set of Mac, Mac tools. Well, nice. between that and the shipping to Canada, that must have been nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was ironic. It was, they, they built it up on the show, right? So you got like $10,000 worth of tools, except I was a mechanic. So I already knew how much $10,000 of Mac tools were. It's not a lot. Like it fits in a box. <laughs> right. You know, I, I grew up, my father's a mechanic. I grew up around it. And it's always funny when I see the, the crack cocaine truck pull up in front of our shop, right? So we get both Mac tools and, and Snap-on pull in and the mechanics go and check it out. And I know the game. You know, my father did it for years. You know, you'd go in there and you, 
you that's the next thing you need the next thing you need you keep building up your box and and they're all great tools but it's like it's like yeah half your paycheck just keeps going to building your toolbox but you need them but it, it's it's so funny when those trucks pull up in front of our shop at cloakworks and uh, you just go, okay what are they going to be buying today <laughs> yep oh yeah yeah you got to keep adding tools that's, that's just the way it works man it never stops it never stops yep. but my grandfather told me years ago he said to me once he goes just always remember tools don't cost money they make money if you use them right and i've lived them. by that my whole life so you go from that you get on this you you get hear about this this episode or this show in tennessee what'd you do uh, I did the same thing, applied on the internet. I went on the internet and uh, applied. And the, the fact that I'd already done TV automatically got me on a short list. So I, I was automatically called him. And the producer at the time, his name uh, is Tom, uh, Tom Spichowski. He, uh, he told me, he said, you know, the fact that you checked the box that you'd already done TV, we automatically flew you in. So they flew in 20 of us, uh, put us in a shop with a bunch of parts, and just sort of pointed a camera at you and, you know, said, hey, tell us about this part. Tell us about that part. And uh, it just basically I just did what I did in front of 30 kids every day is, is just explained how something works. And uh, I flew home, and, and I, I didn't think. There, I thought there's no way. No, you, you know how hard it is to import somebody from another country to work for you? This is not an easy, an easy task, you know. So I came home with the thought that, you know, that was a fun trip to Tennessee and, I'll, I'll never hear from them again, but that was kind of cool. And uh, I got a phone call the next week, and they just said, "Hey, how soon can you be in uh, uh, be in Nashville to start making television? Because you're you're in." And uh, luckily for me, uh, teaching in Canada is a is, is it's a very prestigious career. Like it, they make it very they make it very difficult to become a teacher, so they treat you really well. And uh, so I was able to go on a, a three year sabbatical just to try this. So I basically was always guaranteed wow. my job back as a teacher if I wanted it. So I said, yeah, we'll just go down and give it a shot and see what happens. And it all, uh, I didn't think it would last 14 years, but it lasted 14 years. So. so, so you did that, you get in there. Now at the time, were there other, um, shows already part of what was the production company name? That was, was RTM. RTM production. RTM. Yeah, okay. RTM. Yes. Yeah, so they had already been, they'd been doing automotive TV for like 20, 20 some odd years. They had basically lived through so many network changes. Uh, it was the Nashville Network, and then it became the new TNN, and then it became, and then eventually it became Spike. And uh, we, they'd been making four different shows. They had been doing an engine building show. It was, at the time, it was called uh, Horsepower. Uh, they were doing a show called Trucks, which at the time had Stacey David on it. Um, they were doing a Moto um, Trend TV, which was the, basically the test like a car and driver type thing. And, uh, and then they had a motorcycle show that got canceled, and it was being replaced with this. All they knew is that they wanted to do a four-wheel drive show. That's all they knew. The network had said, yep, we're going to do four-wheel drive. And that was we basically walked into that, that idea of we want to do a four-wheel drive show. And that was where it all started. That was a, a significant portion of most, I think, uh, hobbyist weekends was to turn on Power Block TV on Spike and watch, you know, those those handful of shows. But Ian, when you first when you first interviewed for that, I mean, I know it was a nationwide search to to kind of find what they were going to do for hosts. Did, 
has your personality always been? I mean, I know our, our, our listeners are going to go, okay, so when did he start changing his hair? And ha- have you always been kind of this outgoing kind of guy? Well, you know, if you're, so if you're going to teach high school auto shop, the first thing you need to understand is there's, there's two different kinds of teachers, right? When you're in high school, there's two different kinds of classes. There's classes that you have to take and classes that you want to take. So the math teacher is always going to have a job because you have to take math. So, but you don't have to take shops. You don't have to take art. You know, there's just, there's certain classes you don't have to take. So if I don't make my class fun, kids don't sign up. If kids don't sign up, I don't have a job. So gotcha. you, when you start, when you start teaching, you figure that out pretty quick. The shop class, my shop class, we always tried to make it fun. You know, we did, um, we built in, in grade 10, we built mini choppers. You know, we basically built those little tiny choppers with a five horsepower motor in them. So kids would learn how to bend tube and weld and form sheet metal and all that kind of stuff. And then in the seniors, we did some tube buggy rock crawler type stuff. So you're always trying to keep the class fun. And kids will always keep you on, the, on your toes. So you're always going to have to stay one, foot ahead, one step ahead of them at, at all times. I remember, you know, you'd always, you always, you always kind of try to bridge that gap between being the fun teacher, but you still have to be a teacher because it's still your job, right? Sure. But I made the mistake one day of, of telling my kids the story about how, oh, man, we used to play so many practical jokes on each other when we were mechanics. It was so much fun. I, we used to take grease guns and fill each other's car door handles. So when you put your hand in it, your hand would get covered <laughs> in grease after, after washing your hands. So sure enough, yeah, that day I go out to my, my, my truck after work, stick my hand up in the door handle, and, of course, it's full of grease. So <laughs> I could be – and I can be mad about that, but really I can't because I taught them that. So it's my fault that they did that to me. So that's hilarious. That's kind of the way you, you got to be, you know. So, yeah, I'd say, I'd say my personality's kind of always been outgoing and fun, and, and I've always been fortunate that I've always liked – every job I had, like, I know guys in the trade who worked in the trade and got burned out and then became a teacher because they were just done. Like, they're just like, if I see another broken car, I'm going to just burn it to the ground kind of thing. And I know teachers who taught and just got burned out. And I get that. I can see how that happens. I've just been fortunate that I've been able to swap up that career when I still really liked it. So, when I left mechanics to become a teacher, I was the guy telling everyone, like, hey, you should all go become mechanics. It's a great job. It's fun. You get to fix stuff. It's a good time. It's a great way to make a living, you know. And when I, was, when I left teaching, I would still tell people, if I had to go back and teach tomorrow, I could. I, I'd love it. I'd go back tomorrow. I've never had to leave a career because I just got burned out on it. I think that's been, that's, that's been fortunate for me for sure. That's pretty unique. I mean, and 14 years on extreme, that's a long time in, in, for, for anybody to hold a job these days. It's, it's, it's unheard of. And, you know, that's just, you know, we, I was super lucky. The RTM at that time was owned by uh, a husband and wife, Joe and Patty St. Lawrence. And, and Joe was just a great guy to work for. Um, and Patty was, was just, she was, she was the numbers and he was the inspiration. And so, you know, she was always keeping everything running and making sure that everything got paid for and, and, and understood the contracts and the, and the relationship with the, 
with our clients and the network. And Joe was, was always the one who would tell you anything you wanted to know about how to run a production company. And, uh, just always just great people. And the cool, the cool story, the coolest story I could tell you about Joe St. Lawrence is if you go back and watch the first two to three episodes of Extreme 4x4 when it first launched, the shows were, and, and we'll be the first ones to admit it, they weren't good show because, A, both Jesse and I, we first time we were working together, this production company had never done off-road stuff before, and, and the, we were coming in blind, and we just had to make a TV show. And so what the what RTM did at the time is they basically just said, all right, we'll just make another version of trucks and just maybe make it four-wheel drive-ish. So they let, they let some of the trucks' influence bleed into Extreme for the first few episodes. So we show up, and we had to do the first few episodes, and we were basically handed a list of parts and a, and a project. They said, this is what you're going to build. And it, it wasn't, it, you know, it's something I certainly would never build now. It was a, you know, it was an airlifted 2500 Ram on 38s that oh, was wow. like a show truck, right? So when we finally took over on show four, the the production company said, "Okay, now you're a technical producer. What are you going to build? Like, tell us what you're going to build." So that was the first sort of real planned rock crawler, and we got a couple of axles from a junkyard, and we brought it in. And my producer, Tom, at the time, he was super excited, right? Because he's like, this is so different. We've never got a junkyard axle and dragged it across the floor and cut brackets off it with a plasma cutter. This is amazing. And uh, so we shoot the show, shoot that episode, and it went to edit. And uh, Joe, the executive producer, came in. We're, we're shooting show six or seven at the time. And uh, edit was all done off-site on the other end of Nashville. We were in a rented garage space. And uh, Joe Saint, we're in the middle of working, and Joe Saint shows up with one of the sales guys and shuts down our production and calls me in and calls Tom in and just basically lectures the two of us on how that is not how they make TV. They're like, oh, wow. no, you can't. You, we don't buy junkyard parts. We don't cut things. Don't, you, know, you can't show grinding. And, and all. they're just like, that's not what we do. These are, and they were used to making, like, pretty shows, right? Like, the Pistons came in, and they were all laid out nice, and there was no dirt, and, and, and that was just what they knew. So they left. Tom and I sat in his office and drank a beer, and uh, Tom said, well, what do you want to do? And I liked show four. I thought it was great, and I told Tom, I said, I, I like it. And Tom said, well, that's the kind of show I want to make as a producer. And I didn't know anything. I'm brand new to this world. And so Tom said, if you're willing to bet on it, I'm willing to bet on it too. I just won't hand the shows in until it's too late for them to change them before they go to the <laughs> network. And, and we'll just, he goes, we'll just run with how we want to do this show. And he said, but we could get fired. And I said, well, I said, I'm on sabbatical, so I'm good. So you tell me, you're the, the guy who's going to get fired. And Tom and I'll, I give full credit to Tom Spy on this because I was I was a complete fish out of water. I was not the guy who would say, "Yeah, let's push back and tell them this is how we want." I didn't know I could do that, right? I was just a host and a technical producer, and uh, he was the guy who said, "No, we we make the show we want to make if we think it's a good show. That's how that's how good shows get made." And uh, so 
he did it. We held back, and the show launched, and show one and two aired, and uh, Pirate 4x4 destroyed us, tore us apart. Worse, and because and nothing they said was untrue. You know, it was it was a duplicate version of trucks. There was no hardcore off road, and and the disconnect was to promote this show. They did it right. They went out to a bunch of We Rock events. They went on trail rides. They they knew what they wanted to make the show. They just didn't didn't know how to get there. So all the hardcore off road guys were expecting the first show to be a hardcore off road truck, and it wasn't. Show one airs. Show two airs. We're just getting bad feedback, bad feedback, and then show four aired, and everything was right with the world. You know, ratings skyrocketed. Uh, sponsors were lined up to sponsor the show. It was different. Everyone was happy. The forums blew up. They liked the show. And uh, to his credit, Joe St. Lawrence drove back out to our studio, walked in, and he looked at Tom and I, and he said, I was wrong. The show is yours. Do what you want. And walk that's, away. That's and awesome. It, and let us be. And that, awesome. that, from that point, that point forward, it was it was our show. That's what we made. I remember those uh, those first episodes actually, and yeah, I mean, it was y- your show was always so different because it was something that I, as a hobbyist at the time, could so relate to, and you were doing things that I could actually do in my garage, but different than trucks where everything was super clean and all of a sudden the, you know, from one cut of a bunch of parts on a table to the next cut is everything's installed and they're firing up this truck. I'm like, well, that, that didn't help me at all because I didn't see how it got done. Whereas extreme was much more hands-on experience. And I think that's why the show was successful for as long as it was. Yeah. I think, you know, there's an old, uh, there's an old saying that you say, you know, real recognizes real, real fast, you know? And, you know, I say to people all the time, I'm like, hey, if you take all the cameras and stuff away, I'm still going to build build Jeeps and, and weld junk in my garage. That's what I do all day, every day. So that that's that's just sort of, and I think that that comes across, and that's why I always sort of say that that's, I, I tell anybody, because I, I, I talk to people all the time who are either A, they're going to end up on a show with a Velocity or with, with a Motor Trend or, or somewhere, and I give everyone the same advice always. I say, don't act. You're not an actor. If you were an actor, trust me, you'd get paid more for what you do and you wouldn't have to build trucks for a living. So that's, that's just, that, that's the best thing to do. And that's, I know that's, that's sort of how I've kind of always sort of just prefaced myself, how I am on the show and how I am in my own garage is usually how I am when I'm on the trail or, or just hanging out, drinking bourbon. It's all the same, you know? There's a big difference in many of those shows, even on that network, and what you did, I mean, when when we left after being on the, the show, we do eight hours or whatever it was or six hours of recording and we'd left. You were usually there for several more hours doing work. I mean, and you are actually there doing the work. And I, I, I emphasize this because I want our listeners to know that, you know, when it comes down to it, we've seen some shows. And we've seen some things where, like you mentioned, everything's laid out. and All of a sudden, it's bolted on. And it just seems like the hosts show up and do the five wrenching and the little speech they need to do. And uh, wrench a little bit here, bolt something on there, and then they're done. Uh, but ex- extreme off-road, extreme 4 by 4 you were out there banging, cutting, grinding, wrenching. I mean, if a, a rig only got built because you did the work. 
Yeah, and I, I mean that was that was kind of Joe Joe's dream, right? Joe used to always say to us, he would say, you you can't go on TV and say to somebody, I rebuilt this transmission unless you rebuilt this transmission because they're going to know. And that was always his point, right? He would say, it has to be, you have to be the person that did it. And that's why I was, I always said, I never wanted anyone to build anything for me. I never wanted anybody to weld anything for me. I would rather, uh, and, and that I want to do the work myself because at the end of the day, like it's a dream job, right? I'm going to give you a shop. I'm going to fill it with tools. I'm going to let you build whatever you want. You just got to build it. Everyone would take that job if you really want to build vehicles. If that's really what you want to do, if you really like building this stuff and, and building off-road trucks, your job's done. You, you've just you've got your Willy Wonka in the Willy Wonka chocolate factory if you like chocolate. If you just want to be famous on TV, it's the worst job in the world because, like you said, you don't just show up and someone hands you a bowl of green M&Ms and a script because – no one's there to do the work. But to me, I always, I loved it. I still love it because it's like, wait a minute, this is my shop. I can do whatever I want in here. Why would I not want to be in here 20 hours a day working? Because that's the best thing in the world in my mind. That's just how my brain works, though. That's Because I love building junk. That's just how it is. Well, I know that the first few times that I met you, Ian, it was always on a trail, usually Easter Jeep Safari, and you always had your hands dirty and, and working on something. Doing what you do, it'd be hard to fake it, especially on a TV show. Um, so, I mean, so 14 years on Extreme, and I, I think we've all seen this. Tr- you and I have had this conversation about the change in what we see as trends and numbers and ratings and social media and and I'm, I'm curious what, what, you, what you're doing now and what do you think has changed in the last even two years? Yeah, so uh, what, what I do now is basically what the impetus for what I do now was, it's just like we've talked about before, there's, there's just fewer people watching TV in a traditional manner. And that's just the nature of society in general. The, the term cutting the cord or, or, or going offline or whatever you want to call it, has become more and more, uh, uh, more and more commonplace. And the number of people who just own televisions is becoming fewer and fewer. At the same time, the number of people on those networks scrambling for eyeballs is getting greater and greater. So I would sit there and every week I'd sit down and, and, and Joe was always great. He'd always give me full access to Nielsen ratings and let me look at it and analyze it and, and just – and just sort of really sort of learn trends, why things are certain ways. And, and, and him and I would talk at, at length about stuff. And, and um, I was watching just Nielsen ratings were just the ratings for the TV show were on a constant decline. And it wasn't just the show. It was TV in general was on a constant decline. But at the same time, I was watching my Facebook and Instagram reach and impression number on a constant incline like it was just going up and there were some weeks where the numbers crossed you know I'd I'd have more contact through Instagram than I did through a cable television show and I just I kept saying to my wife I'd sit there and I'd just talk to her and we'd sit there having coffee on Sunday morning or Saturday morning and I would just say you know this is the future this is we're all going to head this way somebody needs to approach social media as if it's like a television network and create content for it that is 
of the same quality that you would see on network television. It needs to be a high bit rate, good quality, good audio, not just you've seen it. You've probably heard the phrase like, ah, it's just for the Internet, so don't worry about it. Like that gets thrown away. It's we're going to treat it like it's a television show because I think in five years, five years, this is where we're going to be. And and she said to me, she goes, you know, you either got to do something about it or stop talking about it because I'm tired of hearing this. And I said, okay. So that was that's what started the transition. And and when I informed the production company, that is, Joe had sold it a few years back. He retired, and the new owners had taken over. And basically, I informed them that I was planning on leaving to try something new. Uh, that was just sort of the impetus for a uh, for a quick exit and for them to change the show into how they wanted to to change it. And it was just sort of the boot and boot in the ass that I needed to say, you know what? I'm going to give this a shot and, and see what happens. And that's what we've been doing ever since. And, and it's working. It's working well. And that's very cool. And I know we've talked about and will be some stuff to talk about in the future because uh, I know uh, Metal Cloak definitely wants to collaborate with you on your new projects. What's what's the name of the, the new production company? So we operate under a digital lug Oh, digital, like like normally, and lug, L-U-G, and we currently have uh, three build series running right now. So we have hands-on cars with Kevin Tate in the hot rod space. We are working with uh, Kenny Hawk on his series uh, called Hawk Machines, and then my show, which is Big Tire Garage. And then we also have three others in development right now, uh, two in the hot rod space and one in the classic truck space. So what we do differently is we basically, instead of trying to create a series or a show that we're going to try to make last a long time, we basically slide in there and we'll say, all right, let's let's build truck X with builder Y and we'll use the following social media to get exposure for it. And that, that's how we distribute it. And because we're not tied to a network, we, we have full control over every every aspect of it which which gives us the freedom to kind of try some cool new stuff which is which has been fun you know i remember you and i had a conversation i don't know if it was at sema or if it was at pigeon forge but uh i share with our our listeners it kind of made me chuckle you said uh, you know there's so many guys out there that own garages and they all want to make a show and you had visited with a few of them and talked with a few of them and and in, in one afternoon, they may do some crazy stuff, but the reality of it is, is over a week or two's time frame, nothing really happens. They're just turning wrenches. And you had said to me, you said, you know, that's that's great. That makes maybe an episode, but it doesn't make a show. And so I think a lot of people think that, you know, there's some kind of, we, ha- we have fun in our shop, so that's, we should be on television too. Well, that's not the reality. That's not that interesting to most people. I mean, I like some, I watch some shows. I think they're interesting and I watch the current shows that are out there. But for me, you know, I, I learned at the feet of Joe St. Lawrence who, you know, you can't, you can't discount the fact the man had, you know, 30 years of automotive television, which is unheard of. And he always used to say the same thing. He would say, how to television will be around forever. Uh, a television show that just, that isn't how to, no, you watch it once and you're done. And that's, that's the truth. And, like, I still watch old episodes of This Old House 
to this day. I'll I'll, I'll watch it. I'll watch it again because it's interesting. And so to me, that's that's we we more skew towards you know it's the how-to portion. It's the it's the okay. Why do I want to use? Why do I want to use a set of medical offenders on the front of my Jeep? It's because of X, Y, and Z. Not just I'm using medical offenders on this Jeep. Well, why? The, the person watching the show really wants to know what's the benefit of that. What's the benefit of that part? Why do I use that particular piston? Why do I change the gear ratio? If you can add that into a show that's also somewhat entertaining, then people watch it forever, and that that just helps helps get more people watching it helps get more people interested in the sport helps get more people buying jeeps buying parts and there's more people out there having fun and that's all we're that's our main goal in the long term so with these different now hands-on cars hawk machines big tire garage so you're really creating brands around these these individual shows so you're, you're producing for all intent and purposes you're producing your own version of an extreme 4x4 or truck you or whatever it's your own these are brands that you hope to carry on year after year yeah, the difference is, is you know, for Hawk Machines, we just slide into Kenny's shop and we help him produce a show, and he still, we don't do any other traditional television network stuff where I say to him, hey, this is my show, I'm going to do what I want with this show, I'm going to, you know, I'm just here to use your shop, and we, he owns the show too, we're partners in this, I give him the show, I get the show, he gets the show, the sponsors get the show, I just firmly believe that in five years or ten years, we're all going to be consuming media in so many different places. You can't be committed to just one. You can't say, oh, I advertise in X magazine and that's where I get all my customers. You can't, that, that's illogical. You have to be on Facebook, Instagram, every print magazine, every newspaper. Every, if you could be everywhere, you would be everywhere. And so that's, that's, that's the impetus for this idea of we put this show everywhere it can go. And, and anyone who will take it, we slide it their way. And that just gets more eyeballs and more people watching the shows. Also, the barrier's gone for companies. You know, the company uh, used to, if you owned a business and you wanted to promote your product, even five, six years ago, you had a couple options. You send a letter to a print magazine or hope to get in their new product section or you spent a bunch of money to be on TV, and that was sort of your two, two outlets. You don't need that anymore. Everyone out there has their own de facto audience at their fingertips through their own social media account. They just need content. And for somebody like you guys with Cloakworks, you have the ability to create your own content, which is great. Not everyone has that. You know, if, if you're a big company, it's not as easy as just saying, oh, I'm going to walk out back and, shoot the guys pouring oil into the bottle and I'll put that on my Facebook page because that's not interesting. But if I'm sponsoring an episode of Hawk Machines or Big Tire Garage and I can run that on my social media account, hey, now I've got eyeballs on here watching and it's branded with my logo and they're using my products. That's a good thing for me and I'm getting content, which I desperately need because you have to keep feeding that social media beast. It never turns off. Right. Well, That's you hit the nail on the head. Um, Matson, Scott Becker, and myself have had, I don't know how many conversations about that whole more eyeballs um, theology. And it's, it's incredible how many eyes are actually out there. And you're exactly right. I don't think that you can capture the, the, 
the vision that we have of being in front of so many people just by doing an ad in a magazine, that's ludicrous. And I think that when Matson and I first started even doing these podcasts, when Matson approached me and said, I think we should do these, I kind of went, really? Because I thought they were kind of dead, but our, our, our readers have, have definitely shown us otherwise. So I, I think you've, you're on to something definitely. I think there's a lot of people out there that are looking for content, good content, not, not this everyday Facebook post of me eating dinner, um, but good content that they can refer back to in the future and it'll still be interesting and entertaining. Yeah, I think it's like you've got to kind of look at it as like death by a thousand paper cuts, right? I think people sometimes forget that, you know, if you were a television production company 20 years ago and you had a hit show, right? And 20 years ago, there was maybe 15 networks on the air. If you had a hit show on, on TV and it was so good that every network called you up and said, Hey, can we put your show on our network too? You would think you won the lottery. And then if USA Today called and said, hey, can we put you on the cover of our magazine? And can we put you in the New York Times? And But you can do that now. You have the ability to do it. You should be on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, uh, ev- everywhere, because there's going to be a different person in each one of those each one of those little spots. So if you can get everywhere, you have to be everywhere. And that's just, I think that's just the future. It's just got to be everywhere you can be. You know, that's the challenge of a company like ours where um, we are constantly discovering that there are customers out there trying to reach us in these other niches. You know, the, 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 we have a whole program just to monitor communications through Instagram now because customer service requests were coming through Instagram, something that I would have never have considered right? Because here's our channel, go to our website, post here and send us a message or go through Facebook. But now every one of these channels is trying to compete for eyeballs. Every one of these channels has a communication method. Every one of these channels, uh, people are trying to reach us or in this case, wanting to see and view. So you're correct. I mean, the, the, what you're doing, I believe is a home run um, in just the ability to get out in front of people. That's why you know, we're excited to work with you on it. So I want to I want to talk a little bit more about. Let's get more into the the jeeping side of it. This is modern jeeper, and I think we don't want to bore our our guys to death on on the technical stuff. Uh, but, um, so let's let's talk a little bit about trips. Okay, so so let's start talking about events. Easter Jeep Safari. Now I know Corey's been going. You've been going for it thirty years, Corey. Like that. <laughs> I don't know about thirty years. Let's <laughs> not <laughs> <laughs> get crazy. I mean, I have a white beard and stuff. I get that, but um, yeah, at, so, like like twenty. Tw- okay, twenty, thirty. What's what's the difference? <laughs> Ian, how how many years have you been going out to Easter Jeep Safari? Man, it would be. 15, 16, something like that. I'd have to go back and look. But there was a few years that I, I didn't go, didn't have time. But I think the first time I went was, no, 15 or 16 years ago. And, and it seems like every year you're coming out there, because I want to touch on Big Tire Garage, because even when you were doing the show, uh, you had Big Tire Garage as kind of your own little brand. And you've brought some rigs out over the years that were built under that brand and not on the show, right? Yeah, yeah. That literally, Easter Jeep Safari is the only reason that I built the shop truck, to be honest with you, because we, uh, we I'd taken two buggies out for so many years. It just feels like you're cheating when you're in a two-buggy Moab, and it's a hassle, you know? It's on the trailer, off the trailer. Um, it's just, you got, it's, it's just, it's just, logistically, it's difficult. So, 
I knew I wanted a Jeep, and that was the that was how I started building the uh, the shop truck Jeep was because I wanted a Jeep out there for each Jeep Safari, and uh, I love that truck and it, it loves Moab. But yeah, I've I've taken many many trucks out there for sure. And what's your favorite trail out there? If you could say, what's your favorite moderate trail, and what's your favorite extreme trail? So um, I would probably say, golly, everyone's gonna say Pritchett, but it's not my favorite trail. I enjoy Pritchett, Pritchett Canyon, uh, for the difficulty of it. I would say I think my favorite trail would be uh, Cane Creek. I think Cane Creek is going to be one of my favorite trails. Um, I don't know if I'd call that trail a difficult trail. There's that one section near the end that's a little difficult, so I, I'm going to say that's my favorite moderate trail. And then my favorite difficult trail is uh, one I ran for the first time last year, um, it's the shortcut to the Golden Crack. I think it's called Rusty Nail. Rusty Nail. It's, uh, yeah, and it's got that no left turn uh, obstacle on it. That is, I think that's that's my favorite trail out there right now, 100%. Have you done that one, Corey? I have. It's it's a great trail, and it's it's kind of a cutoff to at the Golden Crack on, on Golden Spike. Um, yeah, a great trail, and I agree with, with uh, Ian. Um, King Creek is... An amazing trail. It's got a lot of variety. Pritchett is Pritchett. I mean, it's it's technical. It's fun. Um, that's the first place I ever put Spike on its side. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I like his selection a lot. So you're going out to each safari. So obviously Moab is just a mecca. It's an incredible event. Uh, we've all seen Moab evolve over the last, just the last several years. It's just, it's become incredible. But Recently, you know, Corey went down to San Hollow. Have you been out to San Hollow, Ian? I did go to San Hollow for the first time. Um, I did the trail to SEMA trip with uh, Power Stop Brakes. Uh, oh, right. They started doing That's that a couple years. They started doing that a couple years ago, and and Chris Miller from Power Stop has been on me for years to go to San Hollow. He went there, I think, four or five years ago, and I and I keep wanting to go, and. Uh, he finally, you know, it just sort of happened that it's part of this trail to SEMA. And so we did, we went to San Hollow over there for three days total. And uh, it is a lot of fun. It is a great place to go wheeling. Um, the traction is insane in San Hollow. It's like all of that sandstone that Moab has didn't get, hasn't been polished off enough yet. So Sand Hollow still has a lot of that, that sandstone that's super grippy. Yeah, and it's weird. I was Milt. Uh, we went on a ride with Milt from Dixie, uh, Dixie Four Wheel Drive, and uh, he was saying that it's actually got more traction when it's wet because it washes off any of the sand on the on the rock. But the rock really feels like 80 grit sandpaper, but in perfect lines. Like if you look at the rock, it's got like the wind has just created these perfect lines of tiny little almost like microscopic ledges and the stuff that you can climb there just blows your mind i I was i was astounded at the stuff you could drive up and the fact that it's a hundred percent open ohv which is just so much fun yeah i'm gonna have to get out there uh this year or next year with you Corey. i'm a little jealous now that i've been there yet definitely what but what is your favorite trail in of all time out here you're wheeling you've been wheeling across the country i don't know if there's areas you haven't gone and played in yet but 
But if you, if I handed you a rig and said, here, choose a trail to go to, where would you go? Man, that's too hard. That's too hard to pick that because, <laughs> because there's, there's different kinds, right? So like, so, you know, like in, in the down, down in the South, down Tennessee, Alabama area, I mean, there's such nasty well, hill climb stuff. Then let's talk about it that way, okay? Because there, there's definitely an east-west difference in rock crawling, right? In California, um, you get out there. All I know is sand and and granite, right? You start getting out into uh, into slick rock and some of the areas. You go east coast, and you got a lot of mud and rock and trees. So so let's take it regionally. Tell people about the difference in wheeling across the country from what you've experienced, and if and where you would go in in, in those worlds. All right, so southeast is all the reason that it's all high horsepower, silly rock bouncer shenanigans is because you don't get to pick where you want to go when you wheel in in the southeast. Um, You can have all the ideas in the world that you're going to put your tire on that rock and drive over it. And that's, that's a very common west coast sort of feeling, right? It's like I'm going to pick my line and I'm going to drive it. You don't, you don't get to do that in the East. You basically back up, hit it, and hope that you make it out between the two trees and the top because it's just, there's just no traction. If there is traction there, it goes away in a split second. So I would say uh, in, the, in the South, probably one of my favorite parks to go wheeling at is going to be, uh, well, my favorite place we can't go to anymore unless you know the guy because it's private property. It was... Uh, it was called uh, Mayhem Off-Road, and Mayhem Off-Road was in the back of Marvin's uh, farm, and it was just a series of 15 of the nastiest hill climbs you would ever find. And I mean, like, you're talking, you know, a good 300 to 400 foot long hill climb that you, it's hard to walk up on a good day. It's slick, muddy at the bottom, loose dirt. But then in the middle, there's like a six-foot wall that you're going to have to launch over, and it was just awesome. The, the bypass road, I've seen rigs roll on the bypass road trying to get out. So it's just not a friendly part. So it was, uh, it was basically the place you went if you wanted to wreck your junk. So, but you can't, you can, it was open for a while, but then he closed it. So my second favorite, which everyone's going to go to, which is where Corey's headed to, is uh, Adventure Off-Road Park, which is a great park uh, down in South Pittsburgh, uh, Tennessee. So that would be my favorite part in the southeast right now. And you're actually right now driving from uh, the northeast, right? Yeah, so I'm coming back down from uh, from Pennsylvania. I was just up visiting, uh, visiting with, with, uh, with a shop up there for a, a potential future show. Um, but so, so I would say that, that's my favorite sort of spot in, in, the, in the southeast. Um, in the Northeast, uh, in Pennsylvania area, which if we could call that Northeast, I guess, I got to go on Ultimate Adventure last year, so I got to start in Maine and end in Pennsylvania with those guys. And there was a great place there called uh, Anthracite Off-Road Adventure Center, I think it is, AOOA or something like that. AOA. That would be probably, yeah, that's, that is an amazing park, great place to go four-wheeling. Lots of good trails, lots of fun stuff. So that would be that would be my pick up there. Unless you wanted to go way northeast into like Maine and stuff like that. And then there was a, a place up there called Field and Forest, which I've wheeled in with uh, 
with a couple guys for a Jeep show up there called the uh, Great American Jeep Rally, and that that was some awesome wheeling up there as well. So I picked those ones. Now, if I'm going to come west, I would say we'll go southwest along that way. Hot Springs, Arkansas, which used to be called Superlift Off-Road Park. Now it's just called Hot Springs Off-Road Park. Probably one of the best-run off-road parks in America. Uh, great facilities, great trails, great people, and it's a fun town to visit because Hot Springs has that whole mob uh, history to it. Um, so it's a fun place to visit as well. So that that's where I would go there. Um, then we come out, obviously, Moab. We did that one already. Um, uh, Hammers. Uh, I don't really have a favorite Hammers trail. They're all fun. Uh, and then, but uh, Arizona area, I would have to say Payson would be my favorite place to go four-wheeling. And, uh, Corey, you might know the name of the trail. I can't remember it. It's uh, it, it's up It's uh, in Payson. It's, it's like an in and out. There's a, a waterfall climb at the end, but there's a bypass on the left. Shoot, I can't remember the name of it. So that, um, I think I know where you're talking about. That's a question for our buddy, Mr. Andrew McLaughlin. Yeah, he would know where yeah, it is. Yeah, we, we, shot, we shot a thing for Nissan out there and uh, on the trail, and it was, it was a, it, that was a fun trail for sure. That would be my favorite trail in Arizona so far that I've done. Because it was cool because it was like you're in Arizona, but – you're driving, and then all of a sudden you feel like you're in Colorado because yeah, the, all of the a sudden hills, giant, giant trees show up out of nowhere. It's weird. It's all, it's yeah, like, the rocks cool. are similar. That's just like all of a sudden you're from cactus in the valley to big rocks. Yeah, and giant giant trees, which I thought was super cool. So that would be that would be on the top of the list there. And then uh, uh, Colorado, I would have to go with Holy Cross. Or we did 21 roads this year. Which I thought was pretty good too, but those, that go. would be a toss-up between the two. Yeah, those are two good ones for sure. So I would say, you know, the thing is, you know, everyone's gonna have a different favorite trail, and I think that the 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 reality is, is, you know, I think the best way to answer that question would be the best trail you're on is the trail you're on today, Madison. That's, the <laughs> that's right. That's, that's right. the best. That that's the best answer ever. So, but that being said, you know, if, if somebody had a Jeep. You're talking about all these different trails. Is it is it safe to say that you could go and do every one of these trails in the same rig, or is this something where sometimes you know it's better to have a different modded rig for a different area? I think you know the the beauty and the versatility of the Jeep, uh, especially nowadays, is the fact that you can go pretty much anywhere. Your experience is just probably going to be a little bit different. You know the, the you can go to a place like uh, AOAA or or, or uh, Adventure Off Road Park uh, and in a fairly stock Jeep or a slightly modified Jeep, you're just not going to be hitting the same trails that the Rock Bouncer guys are hitting. But you're still going to be able to get out there and have fun. And I think that's that's the beauty of that platform, right? Is the Jeep is it's truly the Swiss Army knife of off road trucks. Is slight modifications. And you can pretty much go anywhere. It's just what you're going to do when you're there and how hard of a trail you're going to hit and, and, and where you're going to end up. But you're still going to be able to have a good time. No, no questions asked. All right. So we're getting to the point we need to do. We have some tech tips to come up and some other good stuff. But I have a couple of little rapid fire questions for you. So it's just we're already on okay. our favorites. We're going to kind of go on those. So what was your, your best mod under $500? Man, best 
hot under five hundred dollars. Oh, that's easy. Uh, that would be a, that'd be a welded diff. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, Lincoln Locker. Yeah, hundred percent welded differential. No questions asked. Yep, best mod. Best mod. Okay. What was your favorite build you've ever done? Uh, I I'm still it's it's going to be a toss up, and only because I still have it. Um, so either the diesel powered Suzuki that I built. Uh, which I still love that truck, uh, or the 715 Kaiser. That's that's probably going to top it. I love my, my 715. The diesel Suzuki, yeah, I, was that the green machine? Yeah, that was the one that I built it like 10 different ways, and then it ended up with like an aluminum body on a full-tube chassis. But it yeah. was, uh, it's just, it was, believe it or not, a buddy of mine now owns that truck. And that what made that truck so great was without a driver, in wheel and ready form on 37 sticky BFGs, that thing weighed 2,600 pounds. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, That's I mean, awesome. you know, this, I, literally, I literally watched, uh, my buddy Jimmy was driving it, and he flopped it on Moab rims. The truck was so light that he flopped it onto its side. When the sidewall hit the flat rock, it stopped the roll. And the body didn't even touch the ground, and he was able to basically turn in and just give a little bit of gas, and it righted itself immediately. Because there's no there's no weight above the above the handle. Like it's, that's awesome. It's all two thousand pounds, all like two feet off the ground. Like it's crazy. It's awesome. It's awesome. All right, we're gonna do a answer or finish this sentence question, which I know you love. Ooh. A modern jeeper is an adventurer. Oh, nice. Nice. I like it. I like it. You know, I, I got to say, this has been great. There's so much more we could talk about, and we're going to do a follow-up. And like I said, I'm going to have the bonus round pop up, um, and uh, we'll do that extra 30 minutes that you and I did at, in, in live at Offroad Expo uh, years and years ago. But this has been great, and we really appreciate it, all the insights. It, it, this is awesome. Like. One of the things about this show is I think we need to just extend it another hour, Corey, because we're getting these incredible guests, and we could be talking for another hour, hour and a half about good stuff because there's so much we haven't touched on. Yeah, but the, let's the get guests, into our tech. The guests that we've had lately are just pretty interesting, and it's hard to encapsulate it all within an hour or even an hour and a half. So it, it is, it is. So, well, let's talk about our tech tip of the week. And now that we got a guy on here who has been out on the wheel and out on, on the trail, has done a lot. Uh, we've talked about trail readiness. We've talked about trail repairs in the past. But one thing that I know that Ian has done more than I, I can even count on all my fingers and toes is weld junk. So let's talk about trail welding and out there and do it. Corey, uh, you've had some experience with this. Why don't you take it away? Well, everybody in my circle definitely knows that I'm not a welder. Um but I've seen lots of repairs made on the trail, and I know that we've we've gotten pretty creative in using a couple of batteries. And and my buddy Terry that used to have Alpine Off Road has a Premier Power welder in his Bronco. We've used that on the trail, um, and I know that there's a lot of portable welders out there. But but Ian, you're you're the you're the guy when it comes to welding. I mean, what works best? What what should people have? So. I think you hit on probably one of the best is the Premier Power Welder. I've um, I've used a lot of them. I've even tried to take like some of the smaller 
like suitcase welders with me. And the majority of the portable welders out there are uh, are a MIG welder. Uh, so the the there's the ready welder. And then I know that there was a couple companies that had like a battery powered one that like a little suitcase welder. The the beauty of that premier power welder is number one, it's it's engine driven and so it doesn't take up a lot of storage space. So you don't have to worry about it bouncing around inside. But if you if you spend a lot of time arc welding, you can you learn that hey, an arc welder isn't just an arc welder. You can use a premier power welder to cut a piece of metal on the trail you can use it to punch holes and stuff you can and that is aside from carrying an oxyacetylene torch you can't do that with any other of the portable welders out there so i would say my number one pick for portable welders is going to be the premier uh, power welder mounted into your rig and then the other thing i would say is the next thing you need to do is get a small you need to get two things you get a small bag uh, and you need to put in some, you need to go down to Home Depot and you need to buy a bunch of lengths of rebar in different sizes round, cut them into six inch chunks and put them in the bag. And the same with some angle iron and the same with some flat stock, because sometimes when you're on the trail, you can have a welder and that's great. But if a bracket has ripped off a frame, you need another piece of metal to sort of help glue it back together. And rebar works so well for that because it's really, really good steel. All rebar is made at a really high-quality base material, so it will help with that with that trail repair. And then the other thing you need to get is uh, the holders for the electrodes. If you just keep them in a plastic bag or in your tool bag, they soak up water into the flux, and you cannot weld with them. So you need to get the little watertight sleeves that you put the electrodes in and make sure that if you, buy, if you leave them in a little plastic sleeve that you buy them in, you got to tape it up, make sure no water gets in there. Or the next time you buy sneakers and you get that little desiccant pouch, slide it in there with those arc welding rods, make sure no moisture gets into the flux, and then you'll be ready to weld on the trail. And last thing, throw a numbered shade 10 lens somewhere on your rig, even if it's not a full helmet. You, if, that's the thing everyone forgets is they'll have a welder and they'll have stuff but they'll forget the helmet. So get the little shield, like a five by eight, number 10 shield, and keep it somewhere on your rig. And that way you at least have eye protection when you're out there. So maybe a little bit more technical than what most would be looking into, but is there a certain kind of electrode, a certain uh, electrode people should be carrying? So you're gonna, there's, there's a, all electrodes are numbered uh, for right. what they're gonna be welding for. Um, basically uh, what you want is, what's often referred to as like a farmer's rod, which you can get it like, ironically, a tractor supply or, or a farmer surplus place. It's usually a 7018 or a 7014. Those are the two rods that work really well. Um, but that all you want is a good general purpose welding rod. Um, you don't need any high nickel alloy specialized rods on that. Just get a good base material arc welding rod and you'll be good to go awesome excellent well that's great thank you so much those are great tips and i love it i love our tech tip of the week because i learn something every time not that i would actually try to weld out there although it it i have been i can say that the first time i hit the rubicon in my 93 yj uh we had to turn around and wait for uh, a guy named cowboy to come out out because the 
leaf springs I had, which were unfortunately a bad batch from uh, a very well-known company, had a nice big break in it. And that was, that was not fun, but you know, plenty of, plenty of uh, welding rod later, we made it back off the trail and we're able to get that replaced. So I do appreciate trail repairs. Well, Corey, uh, I think it's been another great episode and thank you again, Ian, uh, for joining us. This has been fun. Um, any, anything you want to bring up Corey right before we go? Well, I, again, I enjoy, I always enjoy talking to Ian and seeing him out at events. Um, Ian, are you going to be at uh, the Crawling for Read event? I'm going to try. I am in San Diego uh, for business uh, right before that, and I, I don't know when I fly back, but I try to make it out for Crawling for Read. If I don't make it out for uh, both days, I'm going to try and make it out just for at least one day because I, I like to get out there and support those guys because it's, it is it's a great event, and like I said, it's a it is a great park too. So if I'm there, I'll probably be there Sunday just for the day. Cool. Cool. And, uh, uh, Ian, how can people find you? Tell us all your social media locations. Uh, you can find always on Facebook, Instagram, big tire garage, Ian from big tire garage. Those are going to be the easiest way to find me. Um, it's, it's always the same. If you just search that you'll, you'll find me. There's even a big tire garage.com, but it always ends up on Facebook anyway. So just, if, if you search Big Tire Garage, you'll find me. Just look for the hair. And any, uh, <laughs> and we didn't even we didn't even talk about the hair. And we could have gone a half hour just on the hair alone. Uh, any? Are there any of your shows that are currently airing? Yeah. So Big Tire Garage, uh, the Comanche build is already out. It's uh, streaming on uh, Facebook, Facebook Watch. It's on Amazon Prime. Uh, we also the other shows we talked about the hands on cars and the hot machines. They're on Amazon Prime as well as Facebook, Facebook Watch, and YouTube. So. Pretty much, uh, if you search Big Tire Garage or search uh, uh, Go Manchi uh, on, on any of those uh, areas, you'll find uh, find an episode somehow delivered to you somewhere. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Ian, and thank you, Modern Jeepers, for being with us for another episode. As always, you can find us at Modern Jeeper on Instagram, at Modern Jeeper on Facebook, modernjeeperforum.com, and you can check out our upcoming adventures at modernjeeperadventures.com. Corey, it's been a lot of fun. Ian, thank you again. And Modern Jeepers, we appreciate you always. This podcast will self-destruct in five, four, three, two, one.